Around the same time I was first playing Earthbound, 1996 or so, going by the copyright page in my old book, which I have here before me. Forgive me for being geek sentimental. It's a first American edition hardback with the bear and Lyra and Pan on the cover jacket. Around the same time I was playing Earthbound, I was reading this book, The Golden Compass, for the first time. I would have been nine years old. My dad had got it for me as a present. The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman is the book that more than any other has shaped who I am and how I read, made me love to read the way that I do and eventually even want to share that with other people. And that's why I'm reading it again this fall, why The Golden Compass will be the subject of the enthralling second installment of Bookworm Games. Game Cool Books. Welcome to Episode 1, Lyra and Her Demon. This is Wesley Schantz. For any newcomers to the podcast, or for old friends for whom the overture to the Earthbound series has grown a little fuzzy, a few words about this project. I'll be expressing my gratitude for you sharing a little of your time with me each week, a half hour, maybe an hour or so listening on one time speed, a little less if you listen faster, maybe about twice that if you read along or listen to the beautiful audiobook version narrated by the author and voiced by a full cast. Saying that right up front, thank you for your time. You could be listening to any number of awesome things that are out there, but you're here allowing me to share my annotations and interpretations and appreciation of these words which have meant so much to me. I'll be putting the golden compass in conversation with games like Earthbound and Xenogears, subjects of series past and to come, but also with other great works to which it has been an archway, a threshold, a curtain disclosing the most dazzling stage to me and to many readers, a few of whom I hope this finds. The Golden Compass introduced me to works such as Milton's Paradise Lost and Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience, which Pullman explicitly cites as influences, as well as to the Bible and the Moomins, to Keats and Kleist, to the Magic Pudding and the Fairy Queen, the I Ching, Plato's Republic, and all the wild flights of experimental theology and alternative history, which invite some approaches to the actual history and philosophy which are their basis. In this role, as leader of souls, like Mercury in the Greek myths and alchemical literature, or Virgil and Beatrice in Dante's comedy. Pullman resembles no one so much as those other Oxbridge fabulists, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, though Pullman particularly singles out the latter as his bete noir, straw man, punching bag. He has slighting words for the former as well. And this puts me in the awkward position of being friends, so to speak, with people who are not friends with one another. I greatly admire Pullman and Tolkien and Lewis. They have likewise, in the Chronicles of Narnia and The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, opened up worlds of myth and great literature to me and to countless other readers. Through Beowulf, North Sagas, the whole genre of modern fantasy. They've been huge influences on Corey Olson, whose Canterbury Tales class made a big impact in my education, and then who in turn, as the Tolkien professor and president of Signum University, continues to be a guide to me and others with his work on education reform, bridging academia and fandom. It's people like those other readers of Tolkien, Lewis, and especially Pullman, academics, teachers, authors, and friends, with whom I hope to record in the course of this series to help me think through and have fun sharing this material. So much for this project as a whole. A journey through the stories I love, 
hoping to enrich my own and others' understanding of these works and their place in the wider culture. I began with the video game Earthbound in the spring of 2018, and I'm continuing now this fall with The Golden Compass. I'll release a new episode each Tuesday, exploring the text one chapter at a time, with roughly every third episode being a conversation with someone else about the book and everything relating to it. At the end of each episode, I'll have something special for you, like a recess, a time at the playground or on the field after the class or tutorial. So, I hope you enjoy. You can, if you like, send me comments in any of the places this podcast can be found. On Facebook, YouTube, Anchor, other sites, or on my blog, linked in the description. Now, on to the opening of this book. In his presentation here, it is a manifold beginning. His Dark Materials Book 1, the somewhat cumbersome series title in tones. And a careful look at that copyright page reveals it was originally published in Great Britain as His Dark Materials 1, Northern Lights. Thus the book bears a palimpsest of titles, Northern Lights, Golden Compass, as well as opening the larger story, His Dark Materials, a story which, it turns out, Pullman is still writing all these years later, for a companion trilogy, The Book of Dust, saw the release of its first part, The Belle Sauvage, just last year, and its next installment, reportedly complete and titled The Secret Commonwealth, should be announced for publication soon. This sense of layers of story superimposed, like a cathedral still under construction, and the related imagery I've invoked of openings and doorways is greatly amplified by the lines of Paradise Lost, which Pullman takes as his work's frontis, or epigraph. Into this wild abyss, the womb of nature and perhaps her grave, of neither sea nor shore nor air nor fire, but all these in their pregnant causes mixed confusedly, and which thus must ever fight, unless the Almighty Maker them ordain his dark materials to create more worlds. Into this wild abyss the wary fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while, pondering his voyage. From John Milton, Paradise Lost, Book Two. Hence his series title, and his bid for seriousness as a writer, a creator in the epic tradition footnote here. This happens despite his books being shelved in young adult fantasy series sections, which were already beginning to burgeon with sales, which his Dark Materials helped launch to greater prominence, though its sales have since been dwarfed by J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series, I'm sure. To what extent Rowling's work, in some measure, at least initially, rode Pullman's coattails might be interesting to delve into further. Now, I'll say more about the poem in a moment, but first, there's one more instance of the manifold beginning, of course. After the title pages, the lines from Milton, a four-sentence signpost for orienting the reader, the golden compass forms the first part of a story in three volumes. The first volume is set in a universe like ours, but different in many ways. The second volume is set in the universe we know. The third volume will move between universes. Okay and then the table of contents with its riches of language, the decanter of Tokai, the lithiometer, and chapter 20, Mortal Combat, 
which my dad made sure to point out right away in case I was put off by some of the other things going on here. Combat spelled with a C rather than a K, like the video game, looked odd to me at first, but oh well. After all that, we get Part 1, Oxford. Chapter 1, The Decanter of Tokai. With its opening sentence, Lyra and her demon moved through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side, out of sight of the kitchen. And the story's moving. It was only on subsequent readings with the patience of years and hindsight that I really took the time to think about the poem. Soon, I sought out a copy of Paradise Lost and tried to read it, on the strength of Pullman's recommendation. Milton, in turn, sent me back by way of his allusions and borrowings to Homer and the Bible, and I started to read those too. So I really cannot overstate the importance of Pullman as a literary Pied Piper. Somewhere he tells the story of teaching Greek myths in his classes. He was a school teacher. And of telling his own kids the story of the Iliad and Odyssey. What I have to read from right now, though, is an edition of Paradise Lost introduced by Philip Pullman. Here's what he says. The correspondent once told me a story, which I've never been able to trace, and I don't know whether it's true, about a bibulous, semi-literate, aging country squire 200 years ago or more, sitting by his fireside listening to Paradise Lost being read aloud. He's never read it himself, he doesn't know the story at all, but as he sits there, perhaps with a pint of port at his side and with a gouty foot propped up on a stool, he finds himself transfixed. Suddenly he bangs the arm of his chair and exclaims, By God! I know not what the outcome may be, but this Lucifer is a damned fine fellow, and I hope he may win. Which are my sentiments exactly. I'm conscious, as I write this introduction to the poem, that I have hardly any more pretensions to scholarship than that old gentleman. Many of my comparisons will be drawn from popular literature and film, rather than from anything more refined. Learned critics have analyzed Paradise Lost and found in it things I could never see, and related it to other works I have never read and demonstrated the truth of this or that assertion about Milton and his poem that it would never have occurred to me to make, or, having made, to think that I could prove it. But this is how I read this great work, and all I can do is describe that way of reading. The story as a poem. So, I began with sound. I read Paradise Lost not only with my eyes, but with my mouth. I was lucky enough to study books one and two for A-level many years ago, and to do so in a small class whose teacher, Miss Enid Jones, had the clear-eyed and old-fashioned idea that we would get a good sense of the poem if, before we did anything else to it, we read it aloud. So we took it in turns, in that little sixth-form classroom in Isgol Ardui, on the flat land below the great rock of Harlot Castle, to stumble and mutter and gabble our way through it all, while Miss Jones sat with arms comfortably folded on her desk, patiently helping us with pronunciation, but not encumbering us with meaning. And thus it was that I first read lines like this, Satan is making his way across the wastes of hell toward the new world he intends to corrupt, and a complex and majestic image evokes his distant flight. As when far off at sea a fleet descried hangs in the clouds, by equinoctial winds close sailing from Bengala, or the isles of Ternate and Tidor, whence merchants bring their spicy drugs, 
They on the trading flood through the wide Ethiopian to the cape, ply stemming nightly toward the pole, so seemed far off the flying fiend. Book 2, lines 363 to 43. 636 to 43. That passage stayed with me for years, and still has the power to thrill me. Ply stemming nightly toward the pole. In those words I could hear the creak of wood and rope, the never-ceasing dash of water against the bows, the moan of the wind in the rigging. I could see the dim phosphorescence in the creaming wake, the dark waves against the restless horizon, the constant stars in the velvet sky, and I saw the vigilant helmsman, the only man awake, guiding his sleeping shipmates and their precious freight across the wilderness of the night. So there's something about how Pullman read Milton. The lines opening the Golden Compass and the series as a whole likewise come from Book 2. I'll read them again real quick, since he read some others from Book 2. Into this wild abyss, the womb of nature and perhaps her grave, of neither, neither sea nor shore nor air nor fire, but all these in their pregnant causes mixed confusedly, and which thus must ever fight, unless the Almighty Maker them ordain his dark materials to create more worlds. Into this wild abyss the wary fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while, pondering his voyage. A rolling period. One long sentence which takes two cracks at its opening transitional phrase. The grand prepositional, into this wild abyss. The first time you might read it just like that, as the iams invite you. But the second time, a series of evocative appositives having greatly intensified our impression of what this wild abyss must be like. The womb, and perhaps grave, even the inspired poet cannot be sure, of ever-warring dark matter more primal than the four elements, seeds of the Almighty Maker's creativity. Second time around, you might read, Into this wild abyss and have that much greater awe of the wary fiend who is poised to leap into this chaos towards the Garden of Eden, pausing to ponder a while. It's very tempting to read this at least partly as Pullman's Ars Poetica, if not Milton's. The author's description in the work itself of what he's doing with the work and how he's doing it. Pullman, in his interviews, cultivates a persona of Luciferian atheism or Promethean humanism. I'd hedge in the hopes that we don't get sidetracked by the labels. He cites approvingly Blake's interpretation of the epic. This is also from his introduction, the section Paradise Lost and Its Influence. A poem is not a lecture. A story is not an argument. The way poems and stories work on our minds is not by logic, but by their capacity to enchant, to excite, to move, to inspire. To be sure, a sound intellectual underpinning helps the work to stand up under intellectual questioning, as Paradise Lost certainly does, but its primary influence is on the imagination. So it was, for instance, with the greatest of Milton's interpreters, William Blake, for whom the author of Paradise Lost was a lifelong inspiration. Milton loved me in childhood and showed me his face, he claimed, and in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell he wrote what is probably the most perceptive and certainly the most succinct criticism of Paradise Lost. The reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God, and at liberty when of de devils and hell, is because he was a true poet 
and of the devil's party without knowing it. For the full significance of this poetic and theological and polemical background for the plot and theme of Pullman's work, we'll need to return to these lines and Paradise Lost from time to time later on as we get more of the story than the opening sentence. We'd also ideally read the rest of Milton first, or at least Paradise Lost, or at least its first two books, and a bit more of Blake, at least The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, for a sense of where Pullman's animosity for Lewis stemmed from. We might take a look at his great divorce, explicitly answering Blake's marriage. And from there, we'd want an overview of the whole genteel English apologetic tradition of which Lewis represents the Protestant, and G.K. Chesterton, the main Catholic bulwark thrown boldly in the face of the late 19th to early 20th century Christianity, convulsing in the wake of Nietzsche, Darwin, Freud, and its own complacency, most graphically in the Holocaust, but more quietly desperate in Kierkegaard's Copenhagen, Orthro Rose, Boston. And we'd begin to get a sense of where Pullman's fuel for an anti-religious rejoinder to Lewis would come from. We could historicize and psychologize endlessly. He rewrites the Protestant Reformation, making John Calvin the Pope in Lyra's world, as we'll see. Pullman's grandfather was an Anglican priest, and so on. But ultimately, his love of Milton's poem and of Blake's reading of it seems clearly to be the most significant inspiration for the Golden Compass. As far as Pullman's own biography, there's an excellent essay that he writes called I Have a Feeling This All Belongs to Me. It used to be available on his website, and I think it still is. I'll try to post a link to it in the description. Highly recommend you take a look at that. But that's all background. We come around again to the most important of these many beginnings. Simple delight in sound and story. None of the rest of these theological, biographical, theoretical considerations would matter much without the primacy of Pullman's story pulling us in. Lyra and her demon moved through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side, out of sight of the kitchen. The three great tables that ran the length of the hall were laid already, the silver and the glass catching what little light there was, and the long benches were pulled out, ready for the guests. Portraits of former masters hung high up in the gloom along the walls. Lyra reached the dais and looked back at the open kitchen door, and, seeing no one, stepped up beside the high table. The places here were laid with gold, not silver, and the fourteen seats were not oak benches but mahogany chairs with velvet cushions. Lyra stopped beside the master's chair and flicked the biggest glass gently with a fingernail. The sound rang clearly through the hall. You're not taking this seriously, whispered her demon. Behave yourself. Her demon's name was Pantalaimon, and he was currently in the form of a moth, a dark brown one, so as not to show up in the darkness of the hall. They're making too much noise to hear from the kitchen, Lyra whispered back, and the steward doesn't come in till the first bell. Stop fussing. But she put her palm over the ringing crystal anyway. And Pentelimon fluttered ahead, 
and through the slightly open door of the retiring room at the other end of the dais. We meet Lyra and her demon first of all, immediately accompanying them on a childlike spy mission through a grown-up setting, immersing ourselves in the dimness with its hints of grandeur and formality, learning words like decanter and dais, and learning something about Lyra's playful irreverence, how she flicks the biggest glass at the master's seat, and something about this mysterious demon of hers who tells her to watch out, and she listens. Pullman has said that the demon was his best idea as a writer, that he tried draft after draft of this story and couldn't get it to work until that companion, that friend who was nevertheless part of herself, appeared beside Lyra. Taking the voice of conscience, of circumspection, and giving it external form and personality and a name, weaving its mutability in childhood, its fixity assumed with maturity, into the heart of the plot and theme of his story, Pullman acquired by the resources of fantasy a far greater naturalness and realism for his characters. In the relationship between Lyra and her demon, we get a picture both of the author and his narrative persona, of the reader's connection to the story in imaginative participation. Again, a structure like Milton's emerges. Lyra embodies the forward-flowing freedom of the story, while her demon provides the dynamic tension of his responsible, pausing, pondering wariness. And this is the germ of any story, conflict. And it's there from the start, and woven into the characters of Lyra and her demon. The Greek roots of the word demon go back to Christian superstitious connotations, but these are deflected someone somewhat by that A-E ligatur, so that as a kid I always pronounced it half like daemon in my head. And rather than thinking of witches with familiar spirits, though witches will appear later, or of the sick whom Jesus heals of their possession by demons, there's also the character of Socrates, whose demon bid him to think twice. The Greek roots go back to Homer as well, where Odysseus and Penelope refer to one another with variations on demon as a term of endearment and vexation, calling one another daimonic man, daimonic lady. Though in Plato's dialogues of Socrates, it passes forward as well into Aristotle, whose ethics treats of eudaimonia, happiness, as the supreme good of human life. Aristotle sought it in virtue, contemplation, friendship, in life, in short, rather than placing it like Plato in a higher realm of forms. You can see a glimpse of this in Raphael's School of Athens. Or in the Christian eschatological conception of a kingdom of heaven, which Pullman is at pains to dismantle. So Pantolaimon's name alludes to all of this, to the desire for a new synthesis of the Christian and the classical traditions referring equally to the great god Pan, meaning all, and to the second half of the word, which seems to mean something like compassionate or forgiving. Lyra's name connotes equally the musical instrument, the lyre of Greek bards, borrowed by the Romantics and the philosophers for their examples, and played upon by Odysseus when he strings the great bow and plucks the taut string, 
as well as by Heraclitus. But her name is also a pun on the English word lyre, which Lyra also certainly is. If the meanings of the names are rich with associations, no less so is the setting. An ideal school, a high table set for supper. Again, the plot hustles us through this evocative dimness and into the still more resonant series of hiding places represented by the retiring room. And here it's actually the demon who's rushing Lyra along for her own safety. After a moment, he appeared again. There's no one there, he whispered, but we must be quick. Crouching behind the high table, Lyra darted along and threw the door into the retiring room, where she stood up and looked around. The only light in here came from the fireplace, where a bright blaze of logs settled slightly as she looked, sending a fountain of sparks up into the chimney. She had lived most of her life in the college, but had never seen the retiring room before. Only scholars and their guests were allowed in here, and never females. Even the maidservants didn't clean in here. That was the butler's job alone. Pantalaimon settled on her shoulder. Happy now? Can we go? he whispered. Don't be silly. I want to look around. It was a large room, with an oval table of polished rosewood on which stood various decanters and glasses, and a silver smoking stand with a rack of pipes. On a sideboard nearby, there was a little chafing dish and a basket of poppy heads. They do themselves well, don't they, Pan? she said under her breath. She sat in one of the green leather armchairs. It was so deep she found herself nearly lying down, but she sat up again and tucked her legs under to look at the portraits on the walls. More old scholars, probably, robed, bearded, and gloomy, they stared out of their frames in solemn disapproval. What do you think they talk about, Lyra said, or began to say, because before she'd finished the question, she heard voices outside the door. Behind the chair, quick, whispered Pantalaimon, and in a flash, Lyra was out of the armchair and crouching behind it. It wasn't the best one for hiding behind. She'd chosen one in the very center of the room, and unless she kept very quiet, the door opened and the light changed in the room. Behind the chair in the middle of the room, her not much of a hiding place from which she sees the master hiding also his poisoning of the wine. In all this, there are a couple of more or less distant echoes. First, of the Carabino scene early in the Mozart opera Marriage of Figaro. Second, of the dumb show of the poisoning in the mousetrap play within the play in Hamlet, and of the actual poisoned wine at the end of the play. All that is a bit of a stretch, perhaps, but in their theatrical, even melodramatic quality, they are reminiscent of this scene of Lyra observing the master at his darkest moment. He, in turn, shows her the wardrobe which will be her next much better hiding place. And in this, we have a much better grounds to note an illusion which many have pointed out before. For this wardrobe alludes strongly to the magical world of Narnia in C.S. Lewis, and most strongly by the contrasting use to which Pullman puts it. Like Tolkien, he dislikes allegory, but he is not averse to overt Christian figural and satirical symbolism in service to his story. Rather than transporting Lyra to another world where she would meet a lion Christ called Aslan, this wardrobe 
becomes the vantage point from which she will save her Leonine Luciferian uncle father, Lord Azriel's life, and will begin to enter into his world and her own role in it much more decisively. From the wardrobe, she'll glimpse another world in the Northern Lights, of course, but that will occupy us next week. After a spirited, whispered agon argument with Pan, it concludes like this. This is what you wanted all the time, he said after a moment. You wanted to hide in here and watch. Why didn't I realize that before? All right, I do, she said. Everyone knows they get up to something secret. They have a ritual or something, and I just wanted to know what it was. It's none of your business. If they want to enjoy their little secrets, you should just feel superior and let them get on with it. Hiding and spying is for silly children. Exactly what I knew you'd say. Now stop nagging. After that, the reader much more explicitly takes on the place of Lyra's demon. The two of them sat in silence for a while, Lyra uncomfortable on the hard floor of the wardrobe, and Pantalaimon self-righteously twitching his temporary antenna on one of the robes. Lyra felt a mixture of thoughts contending in her head, and she would have liked nothing better than to share them with her demon, but she was proud too. Perhaps she should try to clear them up without his help. Her main thought was anxiety, and it wasn't for herself. She'd been in trouble often enough to be used to it. This time she was anxious about Lord Asriel and about what this all meant. It wasn't often that he visited the college, and the fact that this was a time of high political tension meant that he hadn't come simply to eat and drink and smoke with a few old friends. She knew that both Lord Asriel and the Master were members of the Cabinet Council, the Prime Minister's special advisory body, so it might have been something to do with that. But meetings of the Cabinet Council were held in the palace, not in the retiring room of Jordan College. Then there was the rumor that had been keeping the college servants whispering for days. It was said that the Tartars had invaded Muscovy and were surging north to St. Petersburg, from where they would be able to dominate the Baltic Sea and eventually overcome the entire west of Europe. And Lord Asriel had been in the far north. When she'd seen him last, he was preparing an expedition to Lapland. Only then does she address Pan again. With her, we think about and then see Lord Asriel's arrival on the stage of the story. And then we hear with him her cry out, no. She foils the master's plans, following the plot of that other master, Pullman himself, with his raven or jackdaw demon. We'll look next week at the way in which the master, like Lyra, is willing to do what he knows is wrong. We'll also reflect on Asriel's motives and his style of storytelling in some detail. For now, we'll have just a few more remarks on chapter one, much as I might like to go line by line and gloss and illuminate everything, everything. I've already talked so long, and it's time to go and have our recess soon. Just first, on the names, Asriel and Stelmaria, his demon. Asriel is a really cool name which fits, because he is a really powerful character. Here's where we see him. Then Lord Asriel stood up and turned away from the fire, 
She saw him fully and marveled at the contrast he made with the plump butler, the stooped and languid scholars. Lord Asriel was a tall man with powerful shoulders, a fierce dark face, and eyes that seemed to flash and glitter with savage laughter. It was a face to be dominated by or to fight, never a face to patronize or pity. All his movements were large and perfectly balanced, like those of a wild animal, and when he appeared in a room like this, he seemed a wild animal held in a cage too small for it. At the moment his expression was distant and preoccupied. His demon came close and leaned her head on his waist, and he looked down at her unfathomably before turning away and walking to the table. Lyra suddenly felt her stomach lurch, for Lord Asriel had taken the stopper from the decanter of Tokai and was pouring a glass. No! Clearly, we, like Lyra, are meant to be in awe of him. The etymology of the name is Hebrew, from the Bible. It seems to translate to vow of God, or filled with joy by God. The L ending is a word for God, reminiscent of the angelic names Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Milton's Uriel. It also looks a lot like Ariel, not the Disney mermaid, but Shakespeare's airy spirit in The Tempest, traditionally his final play. As for Stelmaria, the biblical connection is there as well, but by way of Latin or Italian, Roman, as Lyra will say about the inscriptions in the crypt. Stel for star, Maria for the Virgin Mary, and for Maris, that is the sea. She's a snow leopard, embodying that wildness of Azrael, as well as his elegance, betokening exotic travels by sea over mountains to the north that he is associated with so forcefully. Her speech with Azrael is the only example we hear distinctly of another person's demon talking. Though we see the master's raven and the butler's dog say things to their people, we don't hear what they are. What she says is, you should rest. And his laconic reply, I should sleep for three days, ironically stamps him figurally as a Christ type, as much as a Lucifer. Like the pious name he bears, Azrael's irony here will only become plain much later. And finally, a word about that decanter of Tokai. By titling the chapter after it, in a way, Pullman places us in the position of Azrael, as well as that of Lyra, by the perspective. He offers us the heady wine of his language, his story and its themes, and into it there is undoubtedly mixed some poison, a material visibly white as the pages, but spiritually dark unto death, stirred in with his pencil. This is a dangerous book, without a doubt. A decanter of the 98, the year Spain's empire fell, at least in our timeline, and apparently a very good year for the Tokai in theirs. But Lyra prevents us, I think, from taking the fatal taste. The bond between Lyra and her demon and the links between innocence and experience, and between the reader and the story, and the storyteller, and between delight and responsibility which this represents, these links, these bonds, are redemptive. So I will attempt to show, anyhow, as we go along. 
Already the master's design has been foiled, thanks to Lyra. Azriel's counter, using the servants to spill the wine without open confrontation, and using Lyra as a spy in the wardrobe. But of what? Already, convention has been upset, not only by Lyra's intrusion into the male-only chamber, but by Azriel setting up the lantern and projection screen across from her vantage point. We'll see what he has to show on it in the next chapter. Now, to look at things in a different light, I want to shift from the classroom to recess. Enough of the subtle stylistic choices and associations ringing like a flicked glass or hitting us like a dark look palpable as an arrow. It's time to play. What I want to do during this portion of each episode is to imagine the story as a game. An unlicensed, of course, and thus wholly figmentary adaptation of the book as a video game. There have been games based on the film adaptation, and that film is a story in its own right, but I haven't played them. Nor the board game that comes with Once Upon a Time in the North, one of the short novellas Pullman released between the conclusion of his Dark Materials and the new Book of Dust. I haven't been able to attend any of the live performances of stage adaptations of The Golden Compass and the other books either. Nor has anyone that I know of seen actual footage yet from a mini-series that's forthcoming. So instead of any review of that, what I want to offer here is a series of illuminated plates, like lantern slides, painted with words, lighted by our pooled imagination for now, without any screen other than the backdrop of this radio-like medium, until and unless we can make it a reality someday, on a TV or phone screen. So let's pretend. The game boots up, displaying the publisher and designer, bookworm soft, and crafting table labs. Then the title screen, like the cover of the book, a snowy blue of starlit north, with the faces of the bear, the girl, and the demon looking, respectively, at the player impassively, and to the right and left, curiously, yet calmly. The Golden Compass, lettered in gold, based on the books by Philip Pullman. Or perhaps for copyright reasons, had it better be Northern Lights, ditto, only in scarlet and green. Press start. Or, if you don't, one of those cutscene collages will follow, with highlights from the gameplay, stirring sweeping musical score accompanying it. For the title screen, though, I think a more atmospheric, restrained, gently arpeggiating piece. Gently, yet insistently arpeggiating and quasi-baroque. For the game select menu screen, music that's rhythmic and vaguely jazzy. The background of it will be like the cluttered desk in Pullman's writing shed. Selecting a new game opens a different notebook than those representing save files already underway. The turning pages blur and the lamplight fades out. Milton's lines are displayed over a silent tableau. A circle of light and then a photogram of the northern lights that slowly becomes distinct after the poem is read out loud. There follows a short orientation text about the different worlds, and then the words, Chapter 1, 
the decanter of Tokai. Lyra appears in the hall, near the middle but still to the left and along the far wall. The hall extends ahead, at a sort of three-quarters view, like in Mario RPG, rather than the classic flatness of Earthbound's camera. You immediately have the ability to move, to run and jump, to check with Pan, to, to look around. Pan's transformation ability and Lyra's inventory will be locked for now, until the relevant tutorials in the course of the scene explain how they work. But she can dart around and examine the pictures in the gloom and flick the goblet at the master's chair on the dais. It will be catching the little light there is, conspicuously, to let you know to do so. And it'll tell you what button does it if you don't figure it out on your own. That will prompt the first dialogue with Pan. Unobtrusively, the game will show you how to look from Lyra's perspective back towards the kitchen, and it will tell you how to talk with and switch control over to Pan. Doing so, you can move him ahead to peer into the retiring room. Only then will Lyra, returning control to her, be able to enter. Of course, if you have someone to play to player with, one can play Lyra and the other can play Pan, like Cappy and Mario in Mario Odyssey. The last thing I want is for Pan to resemble too closely the fairies in the Zelda games for the 64, though poking some fun at the likeness will definitely be in order. Now poke around with Lyra in the room with its logs in the fire sending sparks up the chimney, its chafing dish and pipe rack. Sitting on the chair will prompt the scene with the master. Again, you'll be prompted how to spy. Going into the wardrobe next will be suggested by a swirling as of snow from its door left ajar, but it's only one of the robes peeping out as it turns out. As soon as you go in, the steward passes through, and the dialogue with Pan follows. Should you have options what to reply? I wonder. Anyhow, the information about trespassing and conscience and about Asriel has to be conveyed with that mixture of earnest and jest, which takes place in the story, where Lyra can wonder one moment whether the, whether the master plays dress-up with his robes, and the next moment whether he's poisoned her uncle. The butler will come through then for comic relief, pocketing the leaf so you have to stifle a laugh. And of course, you realize that you could have pocketed some and put it in your inventory if you didn't do so. <clears throat> and then, for contrast with Asriel, who enters next. The Oxford theme, which has been playing all oboes and cellos, will fade out now, and Asriel's horns will bray his fanfare. There are timpanies too, I bet, and soaring violins. Much of the dialogue here could be condensed, maybe, but not his remarks with Stelmaria. He takes up the wine, and then you have to call out and tumble forward quickly, so you'd better be paying attention to all the talk. Asriel's grip will diminish Lyra's health slightly, as well as her power. I don't want to call it magic, since it isn't that, nor spirit, since that's a word that gives Pullman fits, but there should be a meter that's separate from health, representing some of those slightly less tangible qualities, 
which are nevertheless represented materially by things like the flashing eyes and the laughter and the demon. And so we'll call it power unless we find something better. It will be what Lyra uses for sprinting and climbing and lifting anything heavy and dominating the urchins and eventually for reading the alethiometer. And a little note will pop up to explain that too. Maybe Azriel will say it, and his power will rise as he begins to dominate the room in chapter 2. With Lyra back in the wardrobe, and the arrival of the lantern, the screen, and the specimens, then of the master himself, the chapter will come to a close. What do you think? Is it too boring, an opening sequence for a video game? Maybe we had better start out with some of the material from chapter 3 instead like saving the rook from the rooftop with Roger. I want to hew close to the story, but I know there may be a danger of woodenness if we try to stick too close. Anyway, it's time for now to save and quit. Until next week, take care. <laughs>